I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Taking Flight with UAVs and Strip-Till, is being brought to you by Totally Tubular Manufacturing. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make an effort to get it added here as well. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released, and also the chance to go back and review episodes from our 2016 series. Thanks again to Totally Tubular Manufacturing for their support of today's program. Totally Tubular planter application products provide precise placement of starter fertilizer below the seedbed to optimize nutrient uptake and effectiveness. Awarded No-Till Farmers Fertilizer Application Product of the Year four years straight, Totally Tubular systems are durable, dependable, and deliver accurate placement of starter fertilizer to complement your fertilizer management strategies. Visit them at totally-tubular.net for more information or call them today at 888-200-3012. And for a limited time, you can receive a 15% discount on full registration to attend the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference, courtesy of Totally Tubular. Visit striptillfarmer.com tubular to take advantage of this special offer available to listeners until June 30th. Well, unmanned aerial vehicles continue to be somewhat of an enigma in agriculture. Recent years have seen interest in the technology grow, but determining whether ag drones are tools or toys is still a topic of some debate. Looking at preliminary results of our 2017 Strip-Till Operational Practices Benchmark Study, 22% of respondents utilize a UAV in their strip-till operation. But the foundation of realizing the potential of UAVs in any cropping system is research. For the last several years, John Nowatzki, Agricultural Machine Systems Specialist at North Dakota State University, has tested and evaluated the application of different UAV systems to assess the real return on investment for farmers. Thermal imagery sensing, crop scouting, and stand counts are all noted benefits egg drone systems can offer, but knowing how to achieve those results requires knowledge. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, John Nowatzki shares his take on researching, selecting, and getting off the ground with UAVs in agriculture. As you said, uh, John Nowatzki, I work uh, at North Dakota State University in Fargo and across North Dakota because my position is uh, an extension specialist, so I work 100% in extension. and. Uh, I do uh, most of my work with agricultural machinery, so most of my work really is in precision agriculture and applications to farming. But um, over the last three years, I've been doing some work with unmanned aircraft, and I'll share some of the uh, 
projects and information that we've done, things we've learned, things that have gone well, things that haven't gone so well. Um, and I, I want to say that a few years ago, I did a, a research project or research applied research project on strip till in North Dakota. And there's very little strip till there. And I looked at the list of people attending here, and I didn't see anybody from, from North Dakota. Uh, when I drive across North Dakota, I don't see uh, any strip till, or if I do, it's very little. And, it's, and I'm not sure why, but um, for one thing, you know, we've been in a wet cycle for the last 15, 18 years, and it's a lot of years, probably most years, we've had difficulty uh, in getting strip till done in the fall because it's just too wet. And if you wait until the spring, uh, you know, we have such a gro short growing season anyway, about 110 days, maybe 120 days, that if you lose some of those days, you're really uh, hurting your yield potential. So farmers want to, we're seeing more tillage instead of less tillage. And so when you have more tillage, there's probably less need for a strip till. Anyway, um, one of the things that I want to point or ask you or say to you, that just anytime you have comments or questions, just raise your hand or whatever. Uh, don't, don't wait till the end. Um, I'm not uh, sure how uh, all of this uh, will relate to your farming operation, but uh, first of all, uh, I'd like to point out that, that we've done a, a number of, of projects, or I've been involved with a number of projects over the last three years, and <coughs> all of our projects are in collaboration with industry. In North Dakota, uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our projects are funded uh, through, the, uh, you know, through the Soybean and Corn Council, but almost all of them also have funds from the North Dakota Department of Commerce. And our legislature uh, has you know, uh, done some, some wise things. And one of them is they've appropriated uh, several million dollars that all that for, for use at the two research universities in North Dakota. One is North Dakota State University where I'm at, the land grant, and the other one is the University of North Dakota. But all of the, these funds that are appropriate, we have to apply for grants, have to be matched dollar for dollar by industry. And it has to be real money. In other words, they can't uh, say, well, you can use our tractor, or you can use our UAV, or you can use something as a, as a match. It has to be real dollars where they either write out a check to, to the university or they uh, supply people that are actually helping. So I think that's a real wise decision on the part of the legislature because it doubles the amount of state money then because industry then supplies the other half. But it also has a really good um, opportunity uh, for us at the university to be really forced to work with industry. and. Uh, and by the way, <clears throat> the reason the legislature appropriates these funds is for economic development. So anything that I'm doing on this UAV work is the idea is it'll create either more jobs in our region or it'll create more, uh, you know, more business. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to point that out uh, that um, the, the, we've worked with, you know, with these. And I want to point out that all of our um, UAS work, unmanned aircraft, is under the Northern Plains UAS type. Three years ago, or two and a half years ago, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, picked six 
sites to do to try to figure out how to safely get the unmanned aircraft into the manned aircraft space. And uh, ours, we're one of them, so they do all of our communication with FAA. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you are have private are private pilots? Quite a few. Okay, so. Um, uh, that's been, you know, one of the major concerns is how to do things safely and, and, and make sure that we're not interfering. Um, real quickly, just to give you kind of an idea of what we're doing, started in 2014, we just had a small UAV project with a fixed wing, small fixed wing, and rotocopter both. Uh, and uh, basically working at one of our research stations, trying to figure out what we can and can't do. Uh, 2015, last year, uh, we worked with, uh, again, small UAVs, um, looking at weed identification, at doing stand count in corn, and, and actually uh, uh, sugar beets as well, and nutrient deficiencies. And then this year, we have a number of projects, but most of them are focusing around, instead of a small UAV, a large one. Okay, this, this UAV is a 35-foot wingspan, <coughs> it flies, it has an internal combustion engine. A wonk, if you're, those of you who are familiar with, with, with gas engine, a Wonkel engine, which is a rotary engine, flies for about uh, 18 hours without uh, stop. And, and we are using that to collect uh, imagery over a larger area, and it collects 50,000, we get imagery over 50,000 acres in one hour with uh, about. Uh, uh, three inch, two to three inch uh, pixel size on the ground. I'll come back to, to our specific projects, but one of the, you know, this technology with, with both with the, with the drones themselves and with the cameras, not so much with the cameras, but with the, with the large UAVs, even the smaller ones, that technology is pretty well developed. The technology is, is mature. And the reason is all these companies, the, the, the more like Northrop Grumman and Boeing, uh, Albert Systems is another one that we work with. They have developed this technology for military applications. And, uh, and you're well aware just by listening to the news that our military, the United States military, uses drones very effectively in, in all of our war situations. So the technology is developed. Like the one I'm saying, I talked about this Hermes 450 that we use, our large one. Uh, is used in the Middle East, it's used in Afghanistan, the British Air Force have them. And, uh, you know, the, the companies come to us at, at, at the university and say, you know, we, we'd, we'd like to get into agriculture. We're very good at, you know, at serving, you know, to, to do it in the military. But in the end, and this will kind of be my message, is that it's a lot, everything in agriculture is a lot harder to do in military applications. That's my observation. Um, we're using a number of different cameras, um, starting with real inexpensive, uh, uh, like this Canon, that can be programmed to take a picture every so often. So before you take off with your UAV, you tell it to start taking pictures or set it to start taking pictures, and then afterwards you get rid of those at the beginning and at the end. Uh, we use um, Cameras that are a little more expensive, uh, like this one is a typical a camera that, uh, that you might, a more expensive camera that you might use on your own for, for a variety of uses. Um, the cameras that we're using uh, here have been modified to take not only RGB, red, green, blue, 
that we can all see, but they also then uh, have a filter removed so they take the near infrared as well, so you get that uh, extra band. Uh, these company, these two are some uh, cameras made from a company again in Minneapolis, Centera, and what's unique about them is they either have two or four lens, and when you have four lens, you can get four different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum uh, taken at the same time. Instead of, like this one, we can set it to take RGB, red, green, blue, or we can set it to take infrared, and so you'd have to fly it twice. But here you'd have the same one camera taking different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Then we use a thermal sensor. Uh, you can see the size of this. Uh, this one's about the same size. This one's a little bit larger. But some of these more specialized cameras get to be pretty expensive. Uh, this one, for example, uh, a $20,000 camera we had on a fixed wing uh, about two weeks ago and, and the battery exploded uh, while it was in the air and the thing came down. Fortunately, it didn't hurt the camera. And uh, we were able to put the, for a couple hundred dollars, fix the UAV and put it back together again. The thermal camera we're using for looking at uh, heat stress on irrigated crops. We're also using this one to uh, uh, try to pick out animals like beef cattle that have a fever. You know, like if I, if I use this camera and took a picture of you now, I could figure out if any of you have a fever. Uh, you know, do a, uh, it, it gets a, a um, it measures temperature for each pixel. So I just average all the pixels that I take of each one of you, or have the computer do it, and I can tell whether or not you had a fever. So you can think about that in terms of cattle. You fly over um, you know, your, your herd of cattle or your feedlot, and you can pick out animals then that have a fever that you could pull out, and you'd be able to hopefully identify animals that are getting sick before you could visually see them. You know, the first thing that we do when we, when we go to a, med a doctor, they take our temperature. And if we have a temperature, you know, two or three degrees above normal, they say well, there's gotta be something wrong, even though we might look normal. So the same is true with animals. The other thing is that uh, beef cattle, for example, their body temperature raises about uh, two degrees uh, within like 36 hours before they calve. And so uh, you could fly over uh, your, your cattle at night and say, I better pull these out and put them in a calving stall. And the same is true for, uh, you know, for artificial insemination. Their body temperature goes up about three degrees, so you pull those off. And then you have to have a way then, of course, of reading their tags so you know which animal it is. Um, but anyway, uh, if, if you're looking at doing this kind of work on your own, uh, on your own farm, um, you probably are going to have to think in terms of spending, you know, for if you want to get... Um, enough to get a vegetative index, you're probably gonna to have to spend at least $1,000 for a camera. Um, these are the small UAVs that we work with. Um, and uh, I guess this Phantom is probably the most common thing that farmers are using, and they're using it because it's, uh, it's very easy to use, it's very you know, fail safe, and you can easily put a uh, video camera on to get real-time video back to your iPad or whatever you're using, or real-time video back to your uh, cell phone, and you can use that for scouting very well. It, it works very well. Um, the problem with the rotocopters is because of the physics involved, you can't keep them in the air very long. Uh, most of the, like this one flies for about uh, half an hour, maybe a little less. Uh, this one uh, probably about 15 minutes. And uh, they can be pre-programmed though too just as well. And the fixed wings are, are better. By the way, those don't handle as much wind we find about 15 mile an hour of wind and that's about all we can do. 
This one is made by Trimble, uh, UX5, and um, it can, I've flown it in 30 mile an hour winds. I've seen it flying in 40 mile an hour winds and it does a very good job. What we do on that is we fly perpendicular to the wind and so it's going the same direction all the time. Uh, completely autonomous. Uh, if you haven't dealt with those, uh, basically you take the, they come with a little computer and you hook the computer up to the internet, download an image or say a Google Earth image of your farm and then you just outline the field that you want to fly, uh, indicate um, what pixel size you want, which then the computer tells it, you know, how high to fly. So then you, you just launch it, and you can go sit down and have a cup of coffee because it's completely autonomous. And when it's done taking pictures, it'll go to the edge of the field, you know, turn on the camera, go to the other end, stop, turn off the camera and make a circle and come back and forth. And when it's done, it'll circle over you and indicate that it's time to land and you just press a button and it comes in and lands. So you don't have to fly it. In fact, this one doesn't come with any kind of remote control at all. It's just a computer. It's completely autonomous. Um, this one is similar, um, but it is, um, also comes with a remote control so you, you can fly it as well. Yeah, the size, uh, well, first of all, these are, are small. You know, they're probably like a foot in, a foot, this is about a foot across, this one's about 18 inches. Uh, this one is about 36 inch wingspan. Um, this one is about a five foot wingspan. And this one is about a 10 foot wingspan. This uh, is uh, made by the, one of the companies that we work with, a Florida based company. And this one will fly for about an hour and a half. This one about, these two about an hour on one battery. Uh, and the batteries are, are um, you know, you, we just buy two or three batteries and recharge them so that they can be recharging while we're flying. The price of these, though, uh, gets to be pretty prohibitive. This one, you could buy this at Best Buy with a, a good um, uh, camera that can give you both still and, and video for about $1,000. This one, we paid about $2,000 uh, with a uh, GoPro-type camera. This one, about $8,000, and that is with a camera. The nice thing about this one is it has a larger uh, place to put cameras and you can exchange put different cameras in you just uh, you know put it you can put more than one camera in this one so about eight thousand this one we paid about thirty thousand for um, and uh, one of the reasons for it is I think it has that name on it there no I didn't say that but <laughs> you know <laughs> the point is that that but the, the nice thing about it is it's just so foolproof it's just so well designed I think uh, basically if you want to get a fixed wing, you're going to have to spend that eight to $10,000, eight to $15,000, maybe even more than that. And if you're going to get a, a fixed wing, a rotocopter, it's a lot less. Well, the price drop, I think absolutely. It's already dropping and uh, the technology is, is getting simpler and simpler. Yeah, I think they'll, they'll, you'll see these very effective for, for half of that price very shortly. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to again recognize and thank Totally Tubular Manufacturing for supporting this podcast. Totally Tubular planter application products provide precise placement of starter fertilizer below the seedbed to optimize nutrient uptake and effectiveness. Awarded No-Till Farmers Fertilizer Application Product of the Year four years straight 
totally tubular systems are durable, dependable, and deliver accurate placement of starter fertilizer to complement your fertilizer management strategies. Visit them at totally-tubular.net for more information or call them today at 888-200-3012. And for a limited time, you can receive a 15% discount on full registration to attend the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference, courtesy of Totally Tubular. Visit striptillfarmer.com tubular to take advantage of this special offer available to listeners until June 30th. Reflecting on John's comments so far, he discussed the variety of styles, sensors, and camera options available on the market. One of his recommendations was to determine how UAVs are going to be deployed on the farm before making a purchase. Setting some baseline objectives and gaining an understanding of the different capabilities and features different UAV systems provide will help avoid buying more than is needed or wanted. John notes that farmers should also be realistic with their expectations of what UAVs can and can't do. While real-time data collection to make in-season cropping decisions is a value point for some systems, John says this should be done in coordination with an agronomist to get into the field and validate the results before taking action. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from John Nowatsky on recent university research with UAVs and what the future holds for this emerging technology. This year, we're doing this project with this uh, UAV and uh, kind of a unique idea, but uh, Elbit, this is Elbit Systems of America. And again, I said it's an Israeli-based company. Their intention is to, within two years, to establish a business on the Northern Plains where they would fly large areas. For example, they could fly a whole county uh, and uh, at, at say 10,000 feet, they could do that in, in, in say two days and then store the imagery in the cloud and let growers, you know, clip it out. And this is high resolution imagery. Uh, what we're doing is we're flying, um, I'll show you a picture of it, but a four by 40 mile corridor in May, June, July, and August at four, six, and 8,000 feet altitude. And basically this one, this sensor is, is right here at, um, for every thousand feet above the ground, you get one centimeter. So if you flew it at 1,000 feet, each pixel size on the ground would be one centimeter. So I mean, you could, you could count, uh, you know, larger, uh, you count grasshoppers anyway, but you can certainly identify most issues. Okay. Uh, then we're using some small UAVs to collect at, I said 400 feet, it's actually below 400 feet. Um, so comparing it with satellite imagery and then we're collecting some ground data. So the objective is to see, you know, is this really usable and is it something that can be done effectively and how does it compare with satellite imagery? You know, for example, if you're doing in-season fertilization of nitrogen and you've got a, a 60 foot applicator, and you, you can't divide that up in, in, in any smaller areas, then why are you worrying about, about using small UAVs? You might as well use a satellite. And even if you have section control, you really want to do variable rate at, at, at that kind of accuracy. I don't know. We may in the future. But on the other hand, the nice thing about these is that, you know, you can fly 
you don't have to, you can fly below clouds, like the satellites, they can't see through clouds. And the other thing is it has to be accurate and it has to be done in a timely way. If you're gonna make decisions on, on crop management, you don't wanna wait two weeks, you wanna do it now. I have a number of students that are out there walking fields and using uh, green seeker technology on the field and then using a, a handheld spectrometer. I do think that as we look forward, even in the near future and probably longer, if you're gonna use this kind of remote sensing in agriculture, you're gonna to have to work with agronomists to make sure that what you see is right. This is the area we're doing with our large UAV. It's um, four miles this way and 40 miles this way. And um, in location, I should have a map of, <coughs> of the United States, a map of North Dakota. You all know where North Dakota is. This is Eastern North Dakota. Uh, just uh, in the right close to between Fargo and Grand Forks, about halfway in between, Fargo would be here. And uh, one of the reasons we chose this area is this is this area is the Red River Valley, which is that area between Minnesota and North Dakota. It's about 50 or 40 to 50 miles wide, and it runs from Winnipeg to South Dakota. And it's an old glacial lake, very, very productive land, very similar to the land here in, in the Midwest. And uh, then as you go west in this part, uh, this is the edge of this old Lake Agassiz, which was a, you know, a glacial lake 10,000 years ago. This is more, there's more variation. There's actually uh, li livestock grazing here as well as a lot of different crops. Here there's corn, uh, soybeans and sugar beets and maybe some potatoes, high value crops. But anyway, this UAV is a little different than what everybody thinks of with drones and agriculture. This one has to take off off of a runway. It has no brakes, so uh, we put a, um, uh, a resting cable across the runway to catch it when it stops, just like on a, on a, um, uh, on a ship. Uh, it's a whole different thing, and in addition to that, the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States today says that you can't fly beyond line of sight, right? So we had to have a chase plane a half a mile, we do every time we fly this, a chase plane within a half a mile of it all the time with a visual observer in the airplane um, with the radio talking to the ground control station. I don't have pictures, I don't think, of the uh, uh, ground control station, uh, but um, this aircraft has, you know, there's three people sitting in this ground control station. It's about 12 feet long and about eight feet wide and about 10 feet high with three different computers. So they're the ones controlling this aircraft all the time and in radio communication with it. And then we have an antenna, a parabolic antenna that, you know, maintains the, the uh, radio frequency between the ground and the aircraft. And one of the things, the first thing we found out is that if you're flying 40 miles away, you have to allow for the curvature of the earth because the radio signal is line of sight. So we had to raise the antenna up about 20 feet off the ground so that we didn't made sure we didn't lose it. Um, the chase plane was a civil air control, so we don't have to pay, all, they do it basically, well I shouldn't say for nothing, but we had to pay for the, the fuel cost, but uh, the, civil air, the, air, the, the pilots were doing this as a volunteer, as part of their civil air patrol. Um, and, uh, what, happened, what happens is as soon as the uh, airplane gets up in the air, the first the, 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 civil, the chase plane takes off and then follows it all the time. So always within a half a mile of it, we, the, the, 
the uh, problem with this, of course, is the economics are completely, <coughs> completely destroyed because why, why not just put the sensors on the manned aircraft? But again, the FAA requires that now, but that's going to change. You know, the rules are loosening up this month already so that anybody can, you know, you can do uh, legally, you can fly over your old farms now without having to worry about breaking regulations. And uh, the beyond line of sight, I think, will disappear too very soon. In fact, the FAA is looking, using our project as an example, and particularly they're looking at safety. And it's kind of interesting, you know, in that we've flown uh, in May, June, July, and we're going to be flying again next week in, in, in August. It was very scrutinized by, you know, lots of people and lots of organizations, and certainly the FAA. And um, the second day we were flying, we got grounded because the air traffic control at Fargo, which is about 50 miles away, said that their radar saw that there was a manned aircraft within 100 feet <coughs> of our unmanned aircraft. Well, if that was true, that would be pretty serious. Well, so it took him about 48 hours to uh, analyze everything, and they finally got a little phone call together with all of us, and they said we were wrong. It truly was a 100 feet difference vertically, but it was a mile difference horizontally, and they were diverging. They were going in the opposite directions. But uh, the, the, the point is that the FAA, hopefully, is learning from our project that it's completely safe to put unmanned aircraft in manned aircraft space. You know, we're flying at 8,000 feet, so there's, there's you know, lots of other planes there. We're flying out of a little airport that aerial applicators use all the time. I see when I'm out there and the plane is out, uh, I see um, you know, frequently um, uh, aerial applicators land. They go over to their place where they fill up and refuel and, and re-add their, their chemical and go back up again while we're flying. So we're, we're doing it and we're doing it safely. Um, we also collected uh, ground data so we had something to compare with. These are just green seeker technology, uh, you know, uh, active optical sensors. Um, one of the things that we found was that we needed to do a lot of relations with the local people. On that area where we flew, 40 miles by four miles, there was 520, 518 landowners. Okay, and, and not that many farmers, obviously, but 500. So we did public meetings ahead of time and, and, the, and the issue of privacy was very, very serious. Farmers said, you know, Who's going to see this imagery? Are you going to share it with the federal crop insurance companies? Are you going to share it with the NRCS? Are they going to find new, new wetlands that they didn't find before? Are they going to find wetlands that, are they going to see us out there, you know, maybe uh, charge us with, with breaking the uh, swamp buster law? So we immediately figured out that this was a big issue. I, I really, when I started this, I, I didn't realize how big of an issue it would be, but it was very big. So. We, in North Dakota, just to add, add to this, in North Dakota we have very much open record laws. So any North Dakota citizen can ask for anything that has public money going into it and you're going to get it. So if anybody in North Dakota asks to see the governor's emails, you get it. If you want to see my emails because I work for the university, you could get that. So the farmers realized that anybody could ask for this imagery once we store it on our computers. And so what we did is we agreed that any farmer or any landowner, 
that wanted to could let us know and we wouldn't take imagery over their fields. And there, like I said, there was 518 and three farmers, three landowners came forward and said they didn't want any imagery taken of their land. So in the end, the other thing we did is we agreed to give imagery to any farmer or any landowner that requested it each time we flew. So the farmers were getting that imagery back, so that was, that was a benefit to them. But at any rate, the reason I put this slide up here is that we have uh, then conducted public meetings on a regular basis and continue to do that. Just to give you an idea of what the imagery looked like, and, and it doesn't do a lot of uh, I mean, it, it kind of gets washed out here, but at 8,000 feet, uh, as I said, you're going to get eight centimeter pixel size on the ground. So that's about two and a half inches. So every pixel is about two and a half inches. The first thing that people look at and farmers look at is they're starting to see, uh, I mean, they can see issues uh, on planters, for example, that things are not working properly. Um, this just shows a, um, a vegetative index map. And uh, this was probably taken in May, so there was the, the green was just coming up. Um, here's another one that we did. We tried to do stand count. Uh, this was on sugar beet and on corn. And we found that we were only about 65% accurate with our large UAV. Whereas this is imagery taken with a small UAV and, and, and we were, the R square just indicates that it's almost perfect. So we'd, we'd actually go out and walk on the ground and count it. So we can do stand counts, but the idea of, of doing stand count with even with four centimeter imagery, which is about one inch, just over one inch, it's pretty hard for a computer to count corn plants at that level. Now, like I say, we did it, but we just didn't do it accurately enough. Um, this one, I, I just want to show kind of what we see with the imagery. But again, this was in May. and uh, what this, I put these little squares down here and blew up that area. But whenever farmers look at that, the most amazing thing that they see is, is, is all the different tracks and things in their field. And, and so it's just from a scouting point of view, it's kind of nice to see. You can certainly see uh, other issues here as well that, uh, that must have come from tillage last year, probably issues associated with, uh, uh, with compaction. We're doing, um, fly, we have, the, our university has, has put out plots in the area so that, and this just happens to be a bunch of corn plots that are replicated with different fertilizer and different, um, uh, different hybrids. So uh, we're able to get, uh, like these are, I think are about, uh, about 10 feet by about five feet. So we're able to get information down and get a lot of information off of the uh, both the small and the large. Um, this just shows, uh, you know, I guess from a farmer's point of view, from a in-season fertilization for side dressing of corn or top dressing of wheat, uh, this is the kind of uh, information that we'll get from it: a zone map and then an application map. Another thing that uh, is nice is that uh, we get. Uh, 3D models. I think there's another one in here. Yeah, there we go. This is uh, from 8,000 feet. Uh, so you get that 3D model, so you get to see. Now you have to think, what's the value of that to a farmer? Well, one of the things that we find is that canopy height for in the middle of the summer 
is an indicator of need for nitrogen. It's also an indicator of yield. So canopy height can give us a good indication of what the yield will be. The higher the crop, the more the more the higher the yield. And so that's one of the one of our objectives. This is uh, again from 8,000 feet doing uh, inventory of cattle. We found that to be very easy, even at 8,000 feet. You can tell the computer, you know, that this is a cow. Now go find all the other ones. It, it works out pretty well. Some of the things that went very well, and then some of the things that didn't go well. And I'd like to maybe sh uh, share more about what didn't go well, but um, first of all, we had a lot of partners in that project and it was, it was, we had a lot of cooperation, a lot of support. The FAA and, and the FCC and the North Dakota Aeronautics Commission were all directly involved. The FAA, you know, the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, obviously very concerned about this project. Um, but again, they, they approved it. And, and the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission, also was concerned because here we're using radio signals and, and we, they wanted to make sure that we weren't gonna lose it. Uh, and when we submitted our, the, the frequencies that we we're gonna use, it turned out that part of it was in that CB, where CB radios, so we had to take that out because the, the thought was that we might, you know, somebody could jam that signal. Uh, by the way, I had to have a emergency landing zone for uh, in both in one in the east and one in the west part of the corridor because if we would lose communication, uh, as we do occasionally, but we usually just lose it for two or three seconds. But if you lose it for up to two minutes, the plane automatically goes to one of these emergency landing zones, circles until it runs out of fuel, and then comes down into the, a field that I had selected. It never happened, or it hasn't happened yet. And then, the, the, we, like I say, our extension effort was very good and good support. The local airport uh, is, it was very supportive of this. The image quality is great. Uh, our objectives, um, some things have gone well and some things haven't, but the things that we have done, obviously for scouting, it's very good. Uh, stand count in between nitrogen management, we do very well. Uh, IDC in, in soybeans, I don't know if you have that in the Midwest, uh, iron deficiency, chlorosis, serious issue. We wanna be able to quantify that so you can manage for varieties in the future, and then livestock inventory. Um, some things that didn't go well, weather is still an issue. You know, we flew, as I said, at different altitudes, and there are very few days when you don't have clouds. And we wanted it to be in a situation where it was either all cloudy or all clear. And uh, the problem with all cloudy is that we had to be, you know, we we're flying at, at, at three and 4,000 feet and, and above. The ceiling then had to be above that. And, and that was tough. We, 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 I think we found two or three days all the time that we've flown where we had that kind of a situation. Most of the time we had to compromise and fly when it was partly cloudy. Uh, secondly, uh, for a large area like that, 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 that uh, four mile by 40 mile area is 104,000 acres. And at 4,000, I mean at 8,000 feet, we flew that in two hours, so 50,000 acres an hour. But at, at uh, 4,000 feet, it would take us like um, 10 hours to fly that. So 10 hours means you have to use uh, some sunlight when it's not optimum, because really from remote sensing, you want the sun above you, like from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. Well, we were flying from nine in the morning till about seven in, seven in the evening. So we had some issues with clouds. Uh, image processing still is, uh, is a problem. On that, at, at uh, 
At 8,000 feet, we got two terabytes of data each time we flew it. At 4,000 feet, we've got about eight terabytes. Now, I don't know if you, if you think in terms of what a terabyte is, you know, you think, take your cell phone out and take a picture, you know, it might be one megabyte, okay? If you, so a thousand of those is a gigabyte, okay? And then a thousand gigabytes is a terabyte. And if you try to transfer any of that kind of stuff electronically, it's very difficult. So I, as I indicated, we agreed to provide the farmers with, with data. We thought we could do that faster and we had a problem because each quarter section was about a half a gigabyte, so about 400 megabytes, okay? In my email system at the university, we can only email about 10 megabytes. So here we had 400 megabytes. So in the end, we took this imagery, put it on thumb drives, took it to the two county extension offices and let the farmers come in and get it. That's not a very doable situation. So we need to deal with that. Um, analysis, um, there are some issues with that. Timeliness is one thing. Even with large computers, we are not able to meet that 48 hour uh, turnaround that we thought we could. So, but we're using like a $2,000 computer. I think if you had, and next year we'll do that, get about 20 of those computers and use parallel computing, then we'll be able to turn that processing around in, in 24 hours. It's a doable thing, it just takes some money to do it. Uh, we had some issue with correct uh, 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 geo-referencing, but again, that's, that's that's a doable thing. You just need to put some markers out there. Um, data transfer, like I say, five gigabytes for 160 acres. And then the economics, what's the value of this to you as a farmer? What's the value of this to the company doing it? What's the return on investment? Um, we're, we're working on that. Um, I think that for certain things there's gonna be value and certain things there isn't. But the key is that uh, small and large UAVs, you can, you can be more timely than you can with satellites. And secondly, you know, all the satellites can't see through clouds, so that's always an issue. We can somehow you know, figure out a way to fly when it's clear. But the, the question still comes back is, is there a value to this? To me, we have to figure out a way to take this information send it to the cloud and back to some kind of a data management system that can bring it to you as a farmer uh, within 24 hours or certainly 48 hours and have it down to um, you know, the information that we need for that field is gonna be automatically fed back to you into your computer. That's where we have to go, we're still a ways yet. The other issue that, uh, that analysis is, is a big problem, I always use the example, and this is probably a good one for for this audience is, is chlorosis in corn, yellowing of corn. Where I come from, you know, in North Dakota, nitrogen, a lack of nitrogen causes chlorosis. A lack of sulfur causes chlorosis. Excess moisture on a field causes chlorosis. Can you pick that out from a, from a UAV imagery? And, and I always you know, tell these companies that are so interested in, in, in getting into this agriculture area that that's, it has to be right. You know, no farmer is gonna pay you if it's wrong. They're certainly not gonna pay you the second time. But you know, and again, you know this, but nitrogen deficiency on corn, the lower oldest leaves yellow first. Sulfur deficiency on corn, the newer leaves yellow first. 
and on on moisture, excess moisture, the whole the whole plant gets yellow. But the point is that we can do these things, but we need to make sure that we do them right. Well, thank you, John, for sharing your research and advice on practical application of UAVs in agriculture. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank Totally Tubular Manufacturing for supporting this strip-till farmer podcast. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptill, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on June 1st for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series, Regenerating Soils to Strengthen Your Strip-Till System, where Minnesota strip-tiller and soil health advocate Rod Summerfield will share his methods and strategies for taking a soil-first approach to strip-till. For John Nowatsky, Totally Tubular Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.